You are now listening to Tough Gages Podcast. Hello and welcome to Talk Your Jits Podcast. This podcast is, as the name implies, all about jiu-jitsu. I'm your host, Lamar Smith. And today's guest is a blue belt who trains at Stealth BJJ Midrid, located in Midrid, Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, Tiana Taylor. Thank you for having me on, Lamar. I appreciate the invite. Oh man, the pleasure is all mine. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I've um, been in the UK for 10 days and i'm back in spain now and the skies are blue and that makes me happy because i don't know if you know much about british weather but it's not very pleasant so i'm very happy to be back in spain where it's nice and sunny that's awesome that's awesome well let's give the people what they're here for if you want to give yourself a more proper introduction by all means and let's uh hear about your jujitsu uh, journey wow where to start well i'm 37 um, I started training jiu-jitsu in 2014. Um, to be honest, I didn't like it at first. And I kind of fell into it because um, my partner, who is actually also my coach, was a purple belt at the time. And I would travel around the UK um, with him to competitions. I knew nothing about jiu-jitsu at all. And all I knew is that if someone taps, that's the end of the fight. That was literally the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> um, but I was kind of intrigued. But um, my background athletically is sprinting and high jumping. I'm, I was a track and field athlete for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, met my, when I met my partner, I got into powerlifting and weightlifting. Um, but I wanted to give jiu-jitsu a try. I wasn't expecting very much at all. And um, I wasn't a natural, and I'm still not a natural. I just work very, very hard at it. I'm always on the mats. I'm always, I'm not one of these, unfortunately, I wish I was, but I'm not one of these people who picks up techniques really quickly, who can just see something in in an instructional and put it into practice. But I believe in working really, really hard for things. I don't believe that things you know, come easy. And if you really want something, you've got to damn well work for it. That's always been my attitude. And um, I started training. Um, For me, it was very, very confusing, uh, as it is for most white belts. Mm -hmm. Um, I I spent a long time at white belt. Um, I had seven operations during that time. I was, a, I was a white belt for five years. Um, I had prob- I developed problems with my internal organs. I had no um, injuries from jiu-jitsu, but I just, did, I just don't believe in giving up. So although I was struggling classes, um, the other issue was consistency with attendance because my background is academia. When I was living in the UK, um, I'm now based in Spain, as you mentioned at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a teaching fellow and lecturer in English for academic purposes. So my workload meant that I wasn't on the mats anywhere near as much as I wanted to be. And that was frustrating because I learn kinesthetically. I learn through doing. I need to see a technique and then actually do it. I can't just, you know, learn visually, as I mentioned. So I wasn't getting in the mat time. And despite having a really good job, I was just thinking, I want to really dedicate myself to jiu-jitsu properly so in 2016 um 
I decided to, it was between um, New Zealand, the US and Spain. And I got a full time teaching fellow position at one of the Spanish universities. And I thought, great, much less stress in the UK. I'll be able to train. So when I moved over here, um, I found an apartment and lo and behold, there was a jiu-jitsu academy about 10 second walk from my house. I thought, perfect. This can be great. Um, so I started, I started training more regularly, but there were a lot of issues at that club with um, the instructor. Um, there was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of um, just really uncomfortable behavior that I was not okay with but because I was new to Spain I didn't know the jiu-jitsu culture over here mm -hmm. and I was like okay when something happened in the club I'd look around at everyone else who'd been members there for a lot longer than me and I was thinking why do you guys think this is normal because like I said I hadn't been training for very long at all but because my partner was already training i had i had seen um where he trained i'd seen how things worked and i trained myself in the uk and this was just completely different so i was like okay i'm either gonna have to quit jiu-jitsu or get used to this culture which i really don't feel comfortable with and i did notice it was a, there was a lot of tension in the classes made me feel very very nervous and very very uncomfortable and i'd mentioned this to my partner um who came to Madrid six months after me because he wasn't proficient in Spanish so he stayed in our apartment in the UK until the lease was finished to our to our tenancy was up and then he came over and I would tell him all of this and he'd say to me Tiana you're, you're probably being a bit sensitive because I'm a very sensitive person <laughs> um but then we had five black belts come over in the space of four months five black belts came over from Brazil and they saw what was happening in the club and they refused to stay. So that was my first inkling that something wasn't really right there. Mm. Uh, but, but I kept going. I kept, I kept showing up. Something just told me to keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up. And I was very, very nervous in all of the classes. This, went, this literally went on for months. I'm quite surprised that I stuck it out. And what's interesting is my partner at the time was a brown belt when he came over to Madrid. And as soon as he stepped on the mats with me, the bullying stopped. And it made me think, wow, that should not be the case. That really shouldn't happen. Just because my um, significant other is a higher belt, it doesn't mean I should be spoken to like shit and treated how I was. Exactly. But that stopped me. And that's but that stopped when he arrived because he was basically smashing the instructor as a brown belt and he was obviously a black belt. So I got spoken to properly, but even my partner noticed it. He noticed that people were not spoken to properly. And eventually, to cut a long story short with that, um, he ended up the instructor ended up moving to Brazil. Um uh, but he didn't actually tell anyone he was going. So then no one had a coach. And um, my partner was approached by um, another gym that's not too, again, not too far from where I live and was asked if he would teach jiu-jitsu there. So that's how we started Stealth BJJ Madrid. We started off with one club, which is about three minute walk from my house. And that's where I train most of my classes. 
and um, then we opened a second club um, about three kilometres from the first one. And that's how Stealth Madrid became born, really. And I kept training. I trained under my coach, my partner, for the first time because we were we trained at different clubs in the UK, even though we lived together. Mm-hmm. And uh, the coach, uh, the student coach um, relationship can be quite problematic when you're romantically involved. But just to emphasize, I was with him anyway before I got into jiu-jitsu I'm not one of these people who are like I need to date a black belt I think that's pretty lame to be honest but it happens it does right. happen it does happen um it does happen a lot it does happen but again you get um white belt guys who want to go out with a black belt girl so it's not just one way and we started up the club at the beginning it was literally just me on the mats because it was like my partner isn't as I said isn't proficient in Spanish I am so what we did is we started up our website, uh, which is in Spanish, but all our teaching is solely in English. We are the only fully bilingual club in Madrid. So how it works is um, Gareth, the coach, he's a first degree black belt now. He teaches all the classes in English. Uh, where necessary, I will translate because there are some people we have. We are a very multicultural club, which I'm very pleased about. It's lovely to see how the, the jiu-jitsu community in general, uh, how everyone comes together, despite nationality, color, race, sexuality, etc. That's really nice to see. So sometimes I do have to translate, but generally people's English level and proficiency has got a lot better. So, um yeah, so at the beginning, it was just me on the mats, and then we grew, we grew, and yeah, everything's going really, really well. So that's how Stealth Madrid started. Um, as I said, I was a white belt for five years. I had a lot of adversity, and through that, one of those important lessons I learned, and I would stress this to anybody, whether they're a complete beginner, whether they're even not in jiu-jitsu but thinking about it, whether they're a blue belt, purple belt, is do not compare your journey to other people because you will end up quitting. You'll end up being down on yourself. You'll end up – but comparison is the thief of joy. No one has the same – things going on in their life people learn differently you know some people can pick up things very very quickly I wish I was one of those people but I've I accepted a long time ago that I'm not so what I do is I compare myself to the fighter I was yesterday because if I compared myself if I compared myself to other people I would not be doing jiu-jitsu now like five years is a long five years is a long time to spend at white belt um, so I learned very early on not to compare myself. Um, and that was a very, very good lesson for me. And that's something I still do now as a blue belt. I got my blue belt um, on the 1st of April, 2019. And <laughs> my, my coach is a joker. If it turned out to be an April Fool's, I think we would have split up because he, he knew how much that would have, have, have meant to me. Um, so, yeah, I got my blue belt in yeah April 2019. I was in shock for four days. No joke. I was in shock for four days. Um, but the first thing I did when I got my blue belt is sign up to a competition. because wow. that Yeah, because I, I, I really believe in um, – Jumping in the deep end and jumping the deep end, I did. Got my blue belt. I did the European Masters in Barcelona. So you've got the Europeans, which happens every um, January, usually in Lisbon. This year it was in Rome, in Italy. Um, 
actually in 2003 January 2003 it's actually going to be in Paris in France but normally it is in Lisbon and every April April May time you have the European Masters in Barcelona in Spain and I thought you know what I'm going to jump right in and compete because I have been a blue belt for two weeks I'm going to be against girls who've been a blue belt for three years there's no pressure on me the pressure's on them mm. i lost my first well actually my first my first opponent didn't show up she was that she got uh dq'd for no show and so i went through to the semis and i lost against the girl who had won gold um at the european masters the last three years and she won gold that year as well but this is exactly what i mean when are you ever ready when you get a new belt the answer is you're not. You're so not. jump in. Exactly. So I jumped in. Um, I, I put up a good fight. The girl said to me afterwards, I can't believe you're a brand new blue belt. I was like, yep, just got it. But I'm not going to lie. When I stepped in that stadium, I saw the level. I was like, Christ, what have I done? Um, but yeah, it was great. It was absolutely great. And I, uh, I'm nowhere near purple belt yet. But again, as soon as I get my purple belt, I'm straight on those mats competing because the pressure is not on me. I think there's a real risk in waiting to be ready because who's ever ready, you know? And mm. I feel really strongly about that. I think you've got to, how can you play the game unless you're willing to roll the dice? You've got to shoot your shot despite the odds. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in stepping up regardless because, you know, when, when people watch UFC on TV or what they watch boxing, it's all right for them to criticize and say, oh, that was shit. They're sat on the sofa. They're not, they're not up in the stadium. It takes guts to step up. So I do, I mean, I, I do encourage my teammates because I co-run both the clubs with my partner, as I said, to compete like, early on obviously with white belts you have to know some things you can't just like be training for a week and then jump into competition that i definitely would not advise but oh i'm not quite ready i'm not quite ready you know i i, I really you know like sharing my experiences with my um lower level teammates because there are some people who had um i've seen over the years had great great fundamentals great white belts but then they just left it and left it and then they put pressure on themselves and then they didn't step up and compete and they could have done really well so i'm very much um of the mentality of go up there do your best what happens happens definitely and um yeah i agree with you on that about like you know your rankings and stuff like that but it's like if you you know you go out there and you compete as a blue belt it's not really much changing because you still have that knowledge of jujitsu and you know your own progression but it's like yeah it is a, it is a a big test when it's like your first time on the mats as a new belt yeah you're going to end up going against someone who probably been a blue belt for two three years or competes like twice as much as you so it's I can see how that cha how challenging that can be because I almost did that because um, back in, oh, I think I want to say, I think it was like July, August, let me see, no, or September, between those three months, uh, I was thinking about doing a tournament that was going to happen in October. So like, I was like, okay, that'll give me a couple, a couple, a month or two to kind of like really, really train and then get ready for this tournament. And then that's when I 
uh, talked to my instructor and he was like, uh, so when are you doing this tournament? Or he said, when is the tournament? I was like, I think it's like the, like the third week of October. And he was yeah. like, okay, so we got to figure No, we got to figure it out. Cause we got some stuff to take care of. So I was like, oh, and then he looked at me. I was like, oh, he's like, yeah. So we had to get ready for my brown belt test. And I was like, oh, do I really want to test for like my brown belt? And then like a week after do this tournament. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, eh, no, nah, I'll just I'll just wait until the next tournament. So I'm doing one in January for sure. But I, yeah, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I see where you're coming from. I do get it. Every everyone's got a different mindset. Everyone, you know, handles things differently. Some people don't want to compete at all, which I get. And it, it's crazy because they're like some of my teammates are so much better. I'm not being down on myself, but they're so much better than me. They really are. They've got so much more talent than me, but they don't want to compete because of the nerves. But I have quite severe issues with anxiety. This is common knowledge. It's not it's not a big to be with me I'm very open about mental health um I have such such severe anxiety that when I'm by the mat side or I'm in the bullpen it's just like another day for me so I figured if I because I suffer very very badly with it why not get a reward for it from it mm. you know I'm I have um, numerous diagnoses, which are, again is common knowledge. I have two choices: I can compete or I can complain. I could sit on my sofa. I could not um, not compete. I could just train in the gym. But you know, like I said, I like to get a reward from it. Yeah, definitely. And I was kind of in that ballpark too um, with competing i was like eh, it's not it sounds like it sounds cool or whatever but it's not for me i love to watch it and whatever but one of my training partners um he did a tournament one day and i was like yeah you know it's, it is what it is but then i ended up going to a couple more right after and i was like all right this doesn't seem too bad so yeah. I'll throw, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. And yeah, I was, you know, I was nervous. I was scared of shit because I was like, okay, well, who I'm going to go against? Is this person going to be like super big, super tough, whatever, whatever. But, you know, it turned out to be both. But um, <laughs> but leading up to it, I was like, you know, my one of my training partners that was there who was uh, also coaching me. He was like, you know, how you feeling? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I'm nervous when I first when I first got in there. But by the time I started warming up and getting ready for my match, I was like, I'm cool. You know, did the, Do you know did what? It's interesting, it's interesting you say that because when I sign up for a tournament, I'll be nervous for like... I've, I've actually just done my first sub only, which is why I was in the UK. I saw that. And I was... Yeah, I was nervous for about um, over two months. Mm -hmm. But a suit on the day, yeah, and it's, just, it's the same in, in comp as well. I'll be very, very nervous in the run-up a suit on the day i'm very collected i'm very composed and as soon as the rep when you're i think i'm i am nervous when i'm by um the mat side because i'm waiting for the match before to finish so i'm trying to get i'm in the right headspace anyway but i know it's kind of go time really soon mm -hmm. so i'm waiting for the match to finish but as soon as that ref motions for me to come on the mat it's do or die as soon as i step foot on that mat my nerves go and it's go time and I'm quite glad I have that because um, I have a, a few 
I know quite a few people whose nerves don't go. So mm-hmm. although everything beforehand is really kind of like stressful and nerve wracking, as soon as I step on that mat, I'm like a different person. Yeah. Yeah. And then after, yeah, so after my match, it was only one match because uh, uh, a few of the competitors didn't show. But yeah, like as soon as I got done, I was like, you know what? I want to do another one. Yeah. Like I yeah. got I got that itch to type to want to compete. So I'm hoping that 2021, um, I'm sorry, 2023, um, I'll be able to compete a lot as much as possible. So I'm I'm shooting for at least five tournaments, you know, regardless of the outcome. I just want to do them um, and gain the knowledge yeah. and experience. But yeah, I definitely would like to do start competing a lot more. Yeah, I totally get you there because um, in like I said, I got my my blue belt in April 2019. I competed hell of a lot. I made the podium every competition. It was great. But then I remember the date. It was the 8th of December 2019. I'd signed up for the Europeans in Lisbon three days before and I blew out my ACL in a freak accident, double leg gone wrong in a takedown. Oh. And it wasn't just my ACL. It was my external meniscus. And I actually lost my job as a university professor because of this injury. Oh, wow. So, through my work, I had private insurance. Okay. So I'm waiting for my date to have full ACL reconstruction. My European dream was, I'd actually won silver the, the year before at the Europeans at White Belt. And that's another story. That's, that's actually my proudest, um, my proudest medal, which I'll, come on to if we have time oh yeah we definitely got time white... <laughs> yeah but, but like when you say it's a white belt no one really cares about white belt but because of the circumstances before it was a very very important competition for me but basically yeah um it was the last round and i actually wanted to rest but i thought no come on tiana you've got to push yourself because you're going to do the europeans and went down to take i went to take down a teammate and she went to catch me in close guard and her leg went into the side of my knee and I couldn't be moved for 45 minutes uh, God gave me a great pair of lungs but I screamed the gym down like you would not believe oh, and I physically no. couldn't be moved and my coach was like did you hear a pop did you hear any sound I'm like no I didn't hear anything but I was screaming my head off and it turned out to be ACL and I didn't really know much about ACL all I knew it was the injury you never want to have as an athlete that's all I knew so um I got fired from my work um and then because I had health insurance through my work they cut that off. And I, I was like with the traumatologist in space, I said, listen, I have been fired. I need to get this surgery ASAP because they are going to cut off my insurance and I'm not going to be able to, because I'm essentially now unemployed, I'm not going to be able to get this surgery under the healthcare plan because they're going to cut it off. Mm-hmm. So thankfully I got the surgery just in time, just in time. Um, before it was cut off I'd already been fired at this point but then they have to go through the official paperwork to um to remove you from the insurance plan right um but unfortunately I I so I had this I had the surgery for the full ACL reconstruction it was really bad because some people have um who do their ACLs as severely as I did actually 
um, can like walk a bit or they do a little bit of rehab, like prehab before surgery. Mine was so badly damaged that despite being in the leg brace from my thigh to my ankle and being on crutches, I was still falling over. It was absolutely horrendous. And to go from competing once, maybe twice a month, to not being able to walk led me in a really, really dark place. It was really bad. And also I had lost my job. And this is the job that I had moved from the UK to Spain for. So that was like a double whammy of like, I just, I, do you know what, for someone who specializes in linguistics and language, I still struggle to um, articulate how bad that time was. So this is, we're talking early, two, uh, February 2020. I have my ACL. I have my ACL reconstruction. Come out of hospital. COVID hits two days later. Now our our lockdown in Spain was very very severe. Like I know it's different. I'm I'm not aware of how everything was in the US. I know because states are very very different. I know some states took it very seriously. Others were more lackadaisical. Mm -hmm. But in the UK. It was it was basically a joke, but we had the army in the streets, we had um, the police in the streets, and you could not go out except to go to um, the pharmacy, hospital, or the supermarket, and there were police everywhere checking why you were out. So, because um, I, I I had literally just had surgery, I could not walk. Um, COVID hit, that meant I couldn't access any physio, I couldn't access any rehab, and I basically had to do what I could in my house. And I don't know if how much you know about ACL injuries, but you you need to rehab properly. You right. need to you can't just leave it. But I, I basically had no choice. So my coach is also a qualified personal trainer. He rehabbed me as much as I could, but I didn't get the uh, intense um, rehab and support that I needed because of COVID, which was not anyone's fault, but it was just like, oh my gosh, can anything else go wrong? And um, then 10 days after the first surgery, I had to go to court for unfair an unfair dismissal hearing because I shouldn't, you can't, there's a law in Spain that means that while you are on sick leave, um, you cannot be fired. And I had a permanent full-time contract and I got fired on that, but they didn't know I, I may not be Spanish, but I'm not. My mama didn't raise no fool. I was in a union. <laughs> I was in a union, so I had all my legal costs covered. Um, there's me going to court um, and a four leg brace on crutches, and it didn't have to go any further because it was just like this is the worst, one of the worst. They said the worst cases on fair dismissal that they've seen. Man, so, I tell you. Um, yeah, so 2020 was rough for a lot of reasons and not just COVID. So then I was unemployed. Um, I couldn't train. I couldn't rehab properly. I did the best I could, but I knew that it wasn't enough. But again, still at this time, I knew ACL was the injury no one ever wants. Um, but I don't think I quite understood the magnitude of it. Um, I So yeah, I did what I could. Um, which was very limited because if you went to a gym, if you like tried to 
like just going to a gym even though everything's locked down because people were doing this in the uk if the police turned up then in the uk this is they'd like give you a warning spain doesn't work like that spanish police officers officers do not mess around you get a 20 grand on the spot fine okay so i could not yeah no warning 20 grand on the spot fine no ifs no buts that's how it works over here very 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 different to the uk oh my uk has very very softly softly approach uh that's not the case in spain um i so so yeah i'm doing what i can trying to build up my quad strength etc etc and um when gyms opened again um i can't even remember how 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 many months later this was it was a long time though it was a very long time we had to roll in masks I was only doing a little bit of drilling, but because I think I didn't have the input from either physios or uh, rehab specialists that I desperately needed for such a severe injury, my ACL went again. And this time I did, it was different to the first time. The first time, as I said, I was screaming for 45 minutes. I couldn't be moved. And then unfortunately it was working with the same, the same training partner. And she's actually my yeah yeah so she's actually my weight um so it wasn't like some massive guy did some dick move on me it wasn't anything like that it was just bad luck and i felt something go in my knee but because it wasn't the intensity of my acl going the first time i thought okay this is something's gone but it's okay i started to roll with another teammate and i had to stop and i was like so to my coach i said something's not right went back to the knee surgeon i had another scan ACL rupture. I was like, I could not believe it. I, I mean, I, I was so devastated. Is probably again language. I just, I, I can't accurately, de- accurately depict how I felt. It felt like my world had been had just fallen down because not only have I lost my job, okay, I then wasn't able to work because I couldn't walk. Um, so I focused on running the clubs. I deal with all the, as I said, um, my, my coach, who's the first degree black belt, he does all the teaching in English, but I get a lot of inquiries via Facebook, email, our website, Instagram, and they're all in Spanish. So because I'm proficient in Spanish, I deal with that. And he deals with the teaching side. Um, and I, I just couldn't believe I needed surgery again. I, I could not believe it. But thankfully, this so um, the first operation was in um, uh, Feb, uh, February, yeah, February 2020. My second reconstruct, all of this happened within 13 months. But by the time I got the surgery, it was um, March 2021. Um, but this time, COVID had settled down a bit. So I had the surgery. And because um i'm an athlete i was put on an elite athlete program for rehab and physio and that meant i got two hours of uh, rehab and physio five times a week and i got picked up from my house in an ambulance and i got brought home in an ambulance as well and that was pretty grueling that was grueling but i was so grateful because the first time round, obviously i didn't get anything because of covid and everything was shut down so i was put on can I just just mention here? I'm not saying I'm an elite athlete. I'm not a like world class uh, black belt or anything like that. But that's the program they put me on because I take jiu jitsu so seriously. So um, I had my 
I had um, rehab for two hours a day, five days a week. And it was really, really good. And actually, during the second surgery, they removed all the fibrosis, all the scar tissue that had built up because I didn't have the input from physio and rehab that I needed. So um, things like before I had the second surgery, things like walking up the stairs, I feel stiffness in my knee. And that's because I had a lot of scar tissue and all of that was removed. And I, I have a lot of scars on um, my, hang on, I'm so bad with left and right, with my right side of my body because I, I, um, <laughs> I had surgery on my thigh because I had a suspected muscle disorder. disorder. Um, they expected um, my, um, um, a problem with my muscles due to the amount of CPK I was producing. So I've got a big scar on my thigh. I have... Um, scars on my ACL scars on my um, right knee and yeah so I was thinking okay well that can be the bad side of my body I I don't have any tattoos I just have scars so I was like that's fine Um, the rehab went really well I recovered really well Um, I came back to jiu-jitsu in November 2021 so November last year that's when I came back properly Okay, and my combat, my comeback competition was going to be the Europeans this year, 2022. And um, I was so excited. Everything was going really well. And then my coach um, had a trap nerve in his shoulder um, and he took some painkillers. He doesn't normally take any medication. And he nearly died. <laughs> so he, he, he was, yeah, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's almost laughable. So he's in hospital. Okay. He has absolutely zero defenses. And when the, when the doctor told me this, I thought she meant like his defenses were really, really low. But in Spain, they, they prescribe a lot of very strong pharmaceuticals. In this particular tablet, it's called Metamizal, also known as Nolotil. And it's banned in the US, it's banned in the UK, it's not banned in Spain. But it's actually a very effective painkiller. And he took it, but because there's something about, um, no one can really say what the issue is with it. But if you're white, you really shouldn't take it. A lot of tourists have been dying because they're being prescribed it. It, But it's a very effective painkiller, but it put him in hospital. So my my training was for the Europeans was interrupted quite a lot because I had to go and see him every day, make sure he was okay. He was was in a really bad way. It looked like he wasn't going to pull through. So that was so stressful. I I honestly, it's just, you couldn't make some of this up. You really can't. Um, But thankfully he pulled through. Um, he insisted on coming to the Europeans with me and I wasn't too hot on that because COVID was still around in Italy. We had to wear a certain, um, you couldn't get into Italy without a specific, it was an FFP2 mask. Mm -hmm. Um, the rest of the world was basically back to normal, but Italy wasn't and Spain certainly wasn't. And he came to the Europeans with me, um, I hadn't competed for two and a half years because of partly because of COVID, but obviously I had two ACL reconstructions and I won my first fight by submission and it was the best feeling in the world. 
it was like, yes, I'm back in the game. I was so <laughs> excited. I unfortunately lost on points in my second fight, but I came away with bronze. And that was amazing. That was an amazing feeling. I'm like, yes, I'm back. I'm back in jiu-jitsu. Um, because to, to go from competing like up to twice a month to then not being able to walk and then having two and a half years out, that was a massive, massive change. I mean, really, really dark place mentally. So then I had my combat competition. So after the Europeans, I signed up for four more competitions in the in the coming months. Really excited. Had a new game plan. Really looking forward to executing it and showing what I could do on the mats. And then two weeks after the Europeans, um, I started getting a bit of just like stomach and back pain. Didn't think too much of it. And... Um, it started to affect me on the mats though. So I thought, do you know what? I'll just get this checked out. I went to the doctor and she commented that I've lost a hell of a lot of weight. But the thing is, when, you're, when you've got an ACL injury and you can't really walk around, you are going to put on some weight. And I'd lost, um, I'd, I had lost a lot, but that's because I was active again. And she examined my back, but she didn't examine my stomach. Mm. And that was a big mistake. So there's me on the mats trying to like, I've got a very high pain tolerance, a very, very high pain tolerance, almost too high, <laughs> I would say. And um, yes, yeah, so this is two weeks after the Europeans. I'm on the mats. I'm preparing for these upcoming comps, four I've signed up to. And I've got a really good friend who I'm recording with later in Maryland. And it was a Saturday morning. And he said to me, Tiana, you really should go to the ER. And I'm like, oh, I can't be dealing with that. But I really didn't feel well. And I ended up going to the ER. And I'd been ill for nine days by this point. Mm -hmm. And the doctor examines me and said, how many hours have you been like this for? I was like, hours? I said, I've been like this for nine days. So I was immediately rushed in for an emergency. Um, oh, how do you say it in English? Oh, what's it called? This is when... <laughs> I spend so much time speaking Spanish. Um, we, yeah, emergency CAT scan. Yeah, emergency okay. CAT scan. Okay. Uh, with contrast. And it showed not only did I have appendicitis, I had a ruptured ovarian cyst. And I had basically been training and been in pain for nine days. And you and just, like, just going, just working through it. Yeah, because I'm like, I, um, I'll come back to another story later on, but I'm used to. Uh, I, I can withstand a lot of physical pain, a lot of physical pain. Um, but when he said, well, it, it's because I said, when he, when the doctor asked me how many hours I had been in pain for, and I was like, I've been in pain for nine days. That was when he was like, okay, this is serious. So he, um, yeah, the, the scan showed um, a, a, acute appendicitis and um, a rupture ovarian cyst I was like well that explains a few things rushed straight into theatre whipped out my appendix so, um you know sorted out the ovarian problem stayed in hospital a few days then I had a checkup I think it was a few days uh, a few days later with the uh, gastroenterologist and surgeon who performed my surgery and I was sitting in the waiting room feeling really really unwell and apparently, I didn't know this. Didn't know this later, but I went a funny colour. And the receptionist said, "I'm taking you down to the ER because I was an outpatient at this point." I got, I had another scan, and it showed that my um, my pelvis was full of fluid, and they needed to open me up again and remove it. And I was like, 
are you effing kidding me? Like, holy crap. I have just, I have just, I had surgery like four days ago and you were open me up again. It's like, we don't have any choice. I said, well, what's caused this? Because I was thinking maybe with a ruptured ovarian cyst that, you know, maybe they didn't get out all the fluid caused by the rupture, but they said, you know, they cannot pinpoint the cause of fluid in your pelvis so then i start thinking okay if this has happened now is this going to be a periodic thing so that was that wasn't pleasant at all because um i'm very used to being in theater i've had i think i mentioned i've had 17 operations now and when i'm in yeah, yeah, because my, my organs don't my organs don't want to play ball. The only two surgeries I've had related to jiu-jitsu were the two ACL ones. But um, I'll come back to some of the others um, in a bit. But basically, when when I'm in theatre, my my heart rate is really low because I'm so calm. I know the drill. I know how everything works. Um, and they asked me if I was an athlete because my heart rate was I was like yeah but I know how everything works so I know what you're going to do but what was scary the second time when they had to extract this fluid from my pelvis is I woke up sooner than they had anticipated from the general anesthetic and I can't breathe and I'm like like okay don't panic don't panic okay now I'm panicking because (laughs) I can't breathe so basically um when I woke up before for my the first operation I had, um, I wasn't intubated. They had taken the tube out, and I'm like drastically waving my hands because there's something in my throat, and I can't talk and I can't breathe. And I'm I'm trying to get their attention. I'm waving my hands like drastically, trying to say, "Look, there's something wrong. There's something wrong." And then the surgeon pulled the tube out of my mouth, and I could breathe. And it was it, that was that was that was scary. That was scary because um, thankfully I could move my hands. I wasn't like paralyzed because, you know, you hear stories of people being awake and feeling stuff and not being able to communicate because they're paralyzed, but that wasn't the case. So, um, and then after that, I, I, again, went in a pretty dark place because I'd just come back to jiu-jitsu after two and a half years off. I couldn't do the comps I'd signed up for. I understood that I needed to rest because when you've had... Um, I had two um, emergency stomach surgeries and then I needed intestinal surgery. So within a month and a bit, I had three operations. So the idea of having me on belly was just not a good one. No, at all. No. So, I, so I wasn't, I wasn't able to compete, but what was really difficult for me is my weight category for jujitsu is 64 kilos, which is about 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. And after the surgery, um, I was 54 in gi, in gi, you know, so that's, that's about 119 pounds. Okay. So I'm used to, co- um, my coach trains me for strength and speed because, or, um, as I mentioned, I started off doing, um, powerlifting and weightlifting. So I've got a 232 pound, um, squat and a 310 pound deadlift. I'm, I'm naturally very, very strong. And I was so skinny and so it was very, very odd for me because like people were complimenting me on my appearance. I'm like, you don't understand. I'm an athlete. I don't want to be this skinny Mm -hmm. because a 20 pound drop is really significant. 
and um i did not feel comfortable in my own skin and um from a psychological point of view as well um part of recovering from acl surgery was getting my quads really really strong and having strong legs and i just had sticks for legs there was nothing to me um my bones were protruding and people were t- i had i like i had I'm very outspoken. I'm not typically Spanish. Well, I'm not Spanish anyway, but there are lots of ways that I do not fit into Spanish culture. And I will speak my mind and that some people, but I'm also, I'm always very polite, but some people don't quite know how to take me in that sense because I'm not someone who will keep her mouth shut. And I'm very unapologetic about that. Um, but I would have people telling me, oh, Tiana, you look really good. And I'll say, listen, I'm really underweight. I feel like shit and it's affecting my training. This is not good. And I'd have, oh, but women always want to be thinner. It's like, not all of us, mate. Let's not make like sweeping generalizations here. I want to be a tank is what I do. That's how I fight well. So it was very, it was a very, very difficult change. And in June this year, I, um, I still, ha- I, I, I had been cleared to compete because my surgeons knew that competing was really important to me and there was a competition in madrid and now i normally i normally um compete internationally i travel a lot to compete um because i i'm probably one of the few people who actually don't mind the ibjjf i don't like their prices but i prefer to do higher level competitions for the challenge um and there was an IBJJF comp in June this year. It's normally in November, but because it wasn't like that far away from where I'm based in Madrid, I thought I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I did gi and no gi. And as I said, my normal weight category is 64 kilos, 140 pounds. I weighed in in my gi. Uh, it was 118 in the end. Ooh. So I was like, way way under way way under but i knew i knew what i was getting into before i did the comp i knew i wasn't i had to have eight weeks off training because like i said you, you've, you've essentially had three surgeries yeah knee on belly you can't be training but because it was like kind of like on my doorstep although i had to pay a lot to do beyond no gear again i thought what's the worst that can happen i tap out and actually i in my category and the absolutes in my category i lost to i lost my first fight um the same girl the the other people didn't sign up for the absolute so again i had to fight her in the absolute i lost in gi and she was the only one signed up for no gi and i, I had to fight her twice in category and absolute i lost four fights in one day to the same girl but the thing is though um i i know that i wasn't um hundred percent but it's like if you well i'm not i want to be careful here because i I don't want to say to people you know if you're not well physically you should still get up and compete i want to make that really clear that i'm not saying that i did get the all clear um from my surgeon to compete but because of my style of jiu-jitsu it meant that i had um four dominant subs but i couldn't finish them because i was lacking the strength from being so small so, um, yeah, just a disclaimer there, I'm not saying compete if you're <laughs> ill or have recently had surgery, but I did get the all clear. But I think I think mentally, because I had eight weeks off and I, I don't go into competitions without being really well prepared, I was actually more nervous than the Europeans, 
But I always managed to take something from my um, competitions and my training. So I don't regret it at all. Yeah, I lost, but, you know, I stepped up. I stepped up. So, yeah, that was probably the worst I've done in competition. Um, But, again, it's so easy to, like, say, well, you weren't well, blah, 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 blah. But I knew what I was getting into. I don't believe in, like, laying out excuses before because then that just gives you, like, get out of jail free card. If, it, if the competition had been in another city and I had to travel, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. It's simply because it was really close to my house. I thought, what have I got to lose? You know? And yeah, I did lose. But, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I did lose. I did lose and I lost my uh, the, the extortionate IBJJF fees. But, you know, you, you take the risk or lose the chance. Yeah. And the odds weren't in my favour. But, you know... Yeah. there's always re i think you know there are always reasons why you can't do something or you should wait but i just you know because although i hadn't trained for eight weeks i tried to take the pressure off myself but actually looking back i actually put more pressure on myself which makes no sense at all because everyone else in my category was well and i was well but i hadn't been training so it was kind of like well, what tiana what do you expect but again i always strive to be the best athlete i can be um and i've overcome worse as i mentioned um previously my proudest medal that i've ever won was at the um ibjjf europeans in 2019 have we got time to go into the story because i don't i don't know how long you want your podcast to be no by all means go ahead i am i am enjoying this right yeah i can talk for england and spain in two languages so um, my my partner was uh, and my coach is working for Progress Jiu Jitsu, and they come out of Manchester actually. Progress, very big, very very well known uh, fight label, and um, it was so. I moved to Spain 2016. Yeah, it was January 2017. He was working at, at for Progress Jiu Jitsu at the Europeans. They had a stand there. And the Europeans to me was something I'd heard of. And it was like really prestigious. So I flew out um, January 2017 just to see the venue because for me and my anxiety, it really helps me to know what I'm walking into. So if I know what the venue looks like, that helps ease my nerves. So 2017, I'm not competing. I'm still a white belt. But I go in, I soak up the atmosphere. Um, and I, I looked on those maps. I said, I said to myself, one day I'm going to be here. I'm going to compete here. And that's non-negotiable. I'm going to make it happen. Didn't know how I was going to make it happen. I was a really low-level white belt. So much to learn. But I was like, I was so inspired. I was soaking up the atmosphere. And I absolutely loved it. I got to meet Leandro Lowe as well, which was really, really special, especially with um, his extremely um, sad passing. Um, and... Yeah, I was like, one day I'm going to be here. So, 2000, uh, fast forward to 2018, December mm-hmm. 2018. Um, no, which one was it? Sorry. Okay, I'll pause there so you can edit that. Edit that bit. Yeah. So, to, January 2017, I fly out just to just to soak up the atmosphere, see what it's like. This is my dream. I'm going to compete here. And I hadn't actually competed at all by that point. And it was around um, 
November, I think, I started, um, yeah, I started competing. And in the run-up to the comp, I wasn't feeling great physically. And I thought, okay, I'm an academic. I have a lot of work. I work in a university. It's my job. You know, I'm just run down. I didn't think too much of it. I did my first comp. I was obviously nervous, but I loved it. I got tapped in. I got triangled in one minute 15, but I loved it and wanted to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had another comp in Malaga. It was the AJP tour um, that year. So this is two months later. And I noticed that in the run up to the comp, my heart didn't seem to be beating properly. And I was thinking, well, that's strange because I, I'm healthy as far as I know. And I've already competed now. So why am I so nervous? Why am I so nervous? And it was particularly the day before the comp. I was like, Christ, something's not quite right with my heart. Again, just put it down to nerves. White belt, very inexperienced competitor. It's going to be nerves. So I fight. I win gold, which was amazing. Such good feeling. I mean, I I love the hand raise. I think you find me someone in jiu-jitsu who doesn't love the hand raise, you know, I think everyone will say the same thing, whatever whatever rank they are. Right. And um, came back from that competition, and I think something's not right with my heart. And then over the next few days, I was uh, taken to ER with uh, three suspected heart attacks. And I was thinking, what is going on? What? And it turned it turned out it turned out it wasn't my heart; it was my liver. So my liver wasn't working properly. My ends, my liver enzymes were off the charts abnormal. So immediately the doctors are thinking hepatitis, HIV, all these things they tested for all came back clear and they couldn't treat me because they didn't know what caused it. So mm-hmm. um, I was kind of in limbo and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I would wake up screaming in the night, holding my chest with pain down my arm. This is why they thought initially it was heart attacks. Um, Then what happened was I dropped 25 pounds in a month. I developed black spots all over my face and I had real trouble breathing, but nobody knew what was wrong with me. I was in hospital four times a week. Again, I couldn't work at this point. And I was gutted. I was absolutely devastated because so many people avoid competing. I had just started competing. um, And then I have this illness and nobody knows the cause of it. So I'm in hospital four times a week. And this goes on for, oh, my God, I can't even. It was it was over a year. It was over a year. And I was seeing an internal medicine specialist and she um i don't know how it works in the states but in the uk whenever you see a specialist they will if you get referred to someone it's all done by computer and you'll just get like the appointment in the post it doesn't work like that in spain what happens is the referral gets handed to you as the patient you can see what it says and everything so i read it and it said uh the the internal medicine specialist had, uh, had written patient looks sadder and sadder every time i see her Mm. And she said to me, she said to me, um, she asked me how I was coping. I was like, well, it's really crappy being in hospital four times a week. And it was a really depressing hospital. This was a military hospital. 
um, but it's the one closest to where I live, so that's what I was referred to. And um, I was, yeah, they, uh, the eternal medicine specialist said to me, I want you to see a psychiatrist. And I said, oh, I've actually already got a psychiatrist and psychologist. And her response was, I want you to see someone here. And I was like, well, I'm struggling. There's no, there's no harm in that. I'm very, I'm a big advocate for mental health. And um, so, I, so I welcomed any additional support. So I had an appointment and it was on a Friday. It was, I remember it being very, very cold. And because I have so, I was having so many appointments to find out what was causing, um, what turned out to be grade one liver disease, which is ironic because I don't even drink. Um, Because Brits over here have got a really bad reputation for like, you know, football, hooliganism, drinking, that party and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I knew it wasn't that. And because I was always in hospital, I would say to my to my partner, I've got a hospital appointment, but didn't necessarily tell him where I was going. But this particular morning, I said to him, oh, I'm going to name of hospital, which I won't mention, but it's a military one. Um, I'll be back within the hour. So I go, I go to this appointment and I see the psychiatrist. I explain I've actually got a psychiatrist and psychologist. So I don't really want to waste your time, to be honest, madam. And uh, she, she looks at me. We talk about what's happening with my all these tests and stuff. I said, yeah, it is getting me down because I can't work. I don't want to lose my job ironically ended up losing my job for my ACL um and yeah it's really depressing being in hospital four to five times a week right um we talked a bit about uh, my mental health and she looks she takes off her glasses she looks at me and she says Tiana I've been in psychiatry for over 30 years and I'm very very good at what I do but I've never met anyone quite like you and I was about to joke, well, thank you very much, <laughs> thinking I'm unique. And then she said to me, would you mind coming with me um, to get a second opinion from one of my colleagues? And I said, well, how long will this take? Because I've got to see a liver specialist, the other side of Madrid, north of Madrid, and it's taken me a long time to be able to book in with him. She goes, this won't take very long at all. So I follow her. Uh, through the hospital bear in mind I've been in this hospital four times a week for god knows how long and she's taken me through but not in psychiatry so she's taken me through corridors I hadn't seen before we go into a lift and we go up to floor seven and I'm just kind of like not really paying attention but to get to floor seven you don't press a button in the elevator you need a key okay so this is the first first warning sign that something's about to go down so we go up to level seven um she we go into this what looks like a ward and then uh she goes into her colleague's office and then she tells me to just stay there um and then she wait outside she has a quick word with her colleague and uh then she comes back out says goodbye and i'm like what so then i get i get i get invited into the office and this is her colleague he's a psychiatrist he informs me that i have been um detained under the spanish mental health act and i will not be going anywhere and i'm like in shock um he took away my phone he took away my underwear he took away all my clothes um, all my money, basically all of my possessions, including my underwear. And I was like, whoa, 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 I've come here for a second opinion. 
right what the fuck is going on like and i'm in shock as well because um in spain if you are not married your partner if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend is not considered family right. and they have a policy where you cannot contact anyone for 24 hours and i'm like i've come here for a second opinion i've got to be in san chinaro which is the other side of madrid to see a liver specialist and he said to me tiana you are not going anywhere and i'm like what the hell is going on so basically i got i got um involuntary detained um in a a maximum security military asylum and this was in the run-up to the europeans and i don't forget i had gone to the europeans just to look at the venue i was signed up to compete um i had this stuff going on with my liver um but i wanted to compete definitely want to compete and it was just like my dream was disappearing it was absolutely horrendous um because also if you are involuntarily detained in psychiatric care on a friday the weekend doesn't count as your days in the unit i can't call it a unit it was an asylum but well we'll go with unit um so i'm like in absolute shock and if i hadn't have told my partner where i would have been that day he wouldn't have a clue where i was my yeah phone was i was just i was up. just about to say that like i'm happy you did tell somebody because you'd have been lost yeah because uh, also i have absolutely no family here at all and ironically when i was working at the university i was teaching english for um and that one one of the things i was teaching was english for anatomy um medicine anatomy and psychology ironically i was teaching it in english but then i needed to know all the vocabulary like for my liver and stuff in spanish and my and also for psychology although this is more psychiatry um and nothing was explained to me um it was very very scary incredibly scary because you could not leave you could not leave all that happened was um they wake you up in the morning you also you're not allowed to lie down I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who've been in um psych wards and um they are allowed to go in their room okay fair enough you're not allowed a phone or whatever but they are allowed to lay down that wasn't the case because i was in a maximum security ward there was a bathroom outside each room that you each person's bedroom but there was no mirror not that you needed to look in the mirror anyway but because it was a maximum psych ward um you could some people might have i don't know smashed the glass if there was a mirror and self-harmed or whatever mm-hmm. and i was like i wasn't a danger to myself i wasn't um a danger to anyone else but I, i'd been diagnosed with stress-induced psychosis and the cause of that was not knowing what was wrong with me uh-huh and um, so so when you get a diagnosis like that the first thing they do is drug tests because they're thinking drugs they're thinking drugs everything comes back clear and they're absolutely stumped they're like she's not well but all her drug tests are clear test me again all drug tests are clear and i was around a lot of people who were very very ill very ill you couldn't have a conversation with anybody because people were just very very unwell and i was unwell i recognized that but i should not have been put in a in that unit it was not the right place for me at all right um my boyfriend had been expecting me back within the hour and i didn't come home he thank god turned up at the hospital 
And he was like, my girlfriend came here for a routine psychiatric appointment. Where the fuck is she? And he refused to leave. But nobody told me that he was there. No one told me he turned up. I was lied to a lot. I was lied to a lot when I was in the unit. And over the weekend, um, I was just medicated. And they, I was asking, what are you giving me? And the response was, you're here involuntarily. I don't have to give you that information. So I've no, I, I know now, but at the time I had no idea what I was being um, medicated with. And I'm thinking, I've got Europeans. I should be training for the Europeans. And there's me doing Gracie gaps on the floor. There's me trying to do triangles on the floor. They already thought I was batshit crazy anyway. So I thought this isn't going to hurt. I am doing the Europeans. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I literally flew there just to see what it was like. And it just felt like my dream was slipping away. Um, the British consulate got involved um, because the way that I was detained was not correct uh basically i was tricked um the woman who said tiana i've been a psychiatrist for 30 years i'm very good at my job well if she'd been a psychiatrist for 30 years and she's that good at her job she damn well know i was going to be involuntarily detained against my will she just needed to get me in the ward so i had a real issue with that um and the way that it happened is exactly how i said i'm you know the the British con the um, British consulate in Madrid were ringing up all the time, all the time, saying, "What on earth is going on? How the hell has this happened?" And um, this really annoyed the psychiatrist, or, um, who was going to give me a second opinion. And I was actually due to have surgery. Um, it was just a biopsy on my thigh to rule out a muscle disorder because I still had these issues with my liver and they refused to do it because that would mean I would have to lay down in my room and that wasn't allowed because all our rooms were locked. So um, I'm just thinking about jujitsu. I was like, this is my dream. You know, I can't, I don't eat any Spanish food at all. So I couldn't eat on the ward. I was just living off bread and the odd apple and biscuits. Oh, and my. it was, it was, fucking horrendous i the the guy in charge of the ward ended up getting so sick of uh the british consulate calling he got me transferred to a different ward and that was better that was better um because you could you weren't watched when you were showered because in the maximum security ward you get woken up you get your room searched every day um you'll watch while you're showered and I don't have a problem with that. I'm very comfortable being naked. And that's actually come from jujitsu because I will happily get, um, you know, take my gi and shorts off in front of my teammates. Not not bothered about that at all. Um, I wasn't allowed to use any deodorant because, and that was really frustrating because um, part of the liver issue that I had left me with massive problems sweating, which I actually still have now. And I was like, look, I've got a liver issue. Um, I need deodorant. So finally, they agreed I have a deodorant, but it had to be locked in a cupboard. I don't know, maybe they thought I'd squirt it in my eye or something like that. But there were some very, very ill people on the ward. And when I was transferred to the second one, um, it was a, the people there seemed a little bit more with it. And when I say a little bit more, I mean slightly more with it. And looking back, I can see why they thought I was delusional because I'm like, I need to get out of here. I've got the European Championships in Lisbon. <laughs> I I'm got jiu-jitsu athlete. to do. 
I've got jujitsu to do. But then when you hear the stuff the other people in the ward were saying, I kind of get now why they thought I was delusional. So because this was a um this was December, so Christmas time, um people were um told they could like help decorate the ward, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, or you can make something for yourself and then when you I made something for myself and then you have to present it to the group. And I made I got some cardboard, I got some gold ribbon. And I made a European medal. I put my name on it, my weight class, the year. And I explained to it. And it was gold because I was going for gold. Of course. Of course. And um, I presented this to the group when I finished it. And I looked around. And the guy who seemed most well there, I saw him raise his eyebrows and I saw two psychiatric nurses roll their eyes. And I was, that's when it hit me. They think I'm delusional. They don't. And I, like now looking back, I can see why, because some of the stuff the other people were saying made absolutely no sense. And I was like, I'm not getting out of here. <laughs> and I was called, I was called into, I was called into the office and I was like, right, I'm going to get some answers. And they said to me, oh, Tiana, it's your court here like what it's your court hearing so basically without the, the hardest thing of being in there is that I wasn't told anything that would happen um so when you're detained you have to have a court hearing it's done by video call it's done by judge and two representatives and it was very clear that because the, the first psychiatrist in the maximum security ward was incredibly pissed off with me for um, getting the consulate involved which actually is my right if you are sectioned or which is what we well we say sectioned in the uk i know in this state you say put under involuntary psychiatric hold you have the right to um you have the right to ask for help from a, um like a charity or someone who will you know make sure your human rights are being you know respected right. and they hated that so i was called into the office and i was like right i'm gonna get some answers it turned out to be court hearing the court order was taken out against me to detain me for six months but what they did not tell me is that six months is a standard court hearing but very few people will actually be in for that long but then i just thought the europeans is out i was absolutely broken i was apps and I, but i wouldn't cry i would cry uh, they had cameras in your bedroom as well and their cameras everywhere so i would cry under my blankets at night when i was in my bedroom um the so i was like i'm not getting out of here yeah so i was like i'm i'm not getting out of here and my european dream just felt like it was slipping through my fingers um but then on this second ward um, the psychiatrist was a lot nicer. Um, she spent some time with me. Um, we talked about me being physically ill and how that affected me. And she said to me, I think I'm going to start giving you privileges. Um, I'm going to let you walk around the, the grounds of the hospital. And the ironic thing is, this hospital is a 10-minute subway ride from my house. So it's like I was always so close to my house, yet always so far. Mm-hmm. And that and this this particular hospital because it's a military hospital it has like barriers it has armed guards on the gates and stuff, um, and yeah it just that it just happens that that's the closest hospital to me, so um, 
yeah so i was expecting to be able to walk around the the um grounds then i later got called back in and um she said tiana i reviewed your records you don't need to be here when your partner comes at four o'clock which is visiting time you can leave and i was like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god i'm getting out of here i'm getting out of here i'm getting out of here and i was just like i was so anxious i was like I'm going to get out of here. And four o'clock came and I said to Gareth, I said, I'm going home. I'm going home. I'm going home. And I got my phone. Um, I got all my stuff, changed my clothes. Um, he had cycled to the hospital to pick me up. As soon as I got my stuff, I ran out the door faster than Usain Bolt because I never wanted to, I, I couldn't leave fast enough because i was like what if they change their mind last minute right and i i ran like he was like my boyfriend was calling after me and i was like i ran i fucking ran to that metro and didn't look back and i got out and i thought okay everything's gonna be okay now everything's gonna be okay now it wasn't that was the start of severe severe ptsd like really bad so some of the stuff i saw in the hospital was really unsettling particularly in the um in the maximum security ward there was a guy who was non-verbal and to this day we are talking um um what 89 four years later there was a guy who was non-verbal and um he got camouraged twice by a member of staff still bothers me to the core that i didn't step in because i knew jiu-jitsu and it was ironic because in this maximum security ward on the sign, there were signs on the wall that said, if you as patients see any incidents of assault against from staff against patients, it needs to be reported. And I'm thinking, who the hell is going to believe us? We are in a maximum security military asylum. Who the hell is going to take us seriously? Right. I saw this one guy. I saw this one guy get Kamora twice. Now, if I had seen that in any other setting, I would have stepped in. But I had to think if I stepped in, they would see me as trouble and keep me in for longer. And I, it, it still really, really bothers me more than I can articulate that I didn't step in. But at that moment, I had to think I need to get out of here for me. But that that haunts me to this day. That really does, because the poor guy was nonverbal. All he was saying, well, he wasn't saying anything. He was just like crying. And to shut him up, they camouraged him twice, one of the members of staff. But he wasn't acting up. He wasn't being aggressive. He was just crying. He was just crying. That's what a lot of people thought. Yeah. So then I came out. I was still signed up for the Europeans. I had a couple of days, packed my case, jumped on the plane to Lisbon. My grandmother in Barbados died on my way out to Lisbon. My parents' dog died on the way out to Lisbon. I was thinking, Christ, could anything else go wrong? Um, arrived in Lisbon, tried to just like focus on the fight. Um, it was an Airbnb and then uh, day, fight day comes. I'm like obviously nervous because it means a hell of a lot to me and I've just been through something really traumatic. So I really want to win. Um, and I didn't really have time to be nervous because for like really unusually, they were running ahead of time. So I'm in the warm up area with my coach. We're going over my game plan 
and I go to get some water and I have a look at the screen and I see that my bracket's already started. I'm like, oh my God. So I run upstairs, get my gi checked, weigh in, and before I know it, I'm at the side of the mat. And then I'm caught <laughs> on and the, the ref ushers me on. I win my first fight by submission, get into the fight, do really well, get, um, get to the final, and I had to tap. So I won silver. So on silver, I know, I know it's white belt, it's not blue belt, it's not purple belt, it's not anything like really special. But to come from, you know, potentially being in a um, military asylum for six months, at least, and then stepping onto the European stage, to me, it was like winning gold. And very few people understand that. And when I did get silver, I kind of wanted to go back to the hospital and say, look, I was not. <laughs> I would have rubbed it in her face like I told you <laughs> I told you that I was not meant to be here yeah, it, it, it sounds like a good idea but like I don't know how much you know about PTSD but it's really really debilitating Yeah. and I was saying to my um, psychiatrist the, um, not the one there obviously the one who I had anyway I was saying to him look I feel traumatized by this experience. And he kept saying to me, Tiana, people spend longer than a week there. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Three and a half years later, he agrees I have very severe PTSD. So, yeah, it's rough. It's really rough. I still struggle a lot now. Um, it affects my jiu-jitsu in that I will blank out quite a lot on the mats. Um, but, yeah, it's... It's rough. It's rough. I am still unable to work because of my mental health, but I will still step up and compete. I'll still step up and compete because it's the one thing that makes me feel quote unquote normal. Normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a little bit of my story. Um, I train a lot. Um, I just need my, uh, there's a lot of things technically I need to work on. I'm a blue belt for a reason. Um, I'm a progress chaser, not a belt chaser. And I'm really pleased about that because, like I said at the beginning, if you start playing a comparison game with other people, you will just not, you just won't last. And because I co-run a club and I get a lot of inquiries, people, I can always tell when people say to me, oh, how long does it take to get this? Or how long does it take to earn this belt? Because they might have come from judo or taekwondo or karate where you can get a belt in a much um quicker time than like a black belt in considerably less time than jiu-jitsu i know they won't last because they're not there for the right reasons mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah it's my my competition um experience has been a roller coaster to say the least to say the least <laughs> wow i yeah i'm i'm just soaking all this in that that is crazy yeah and it, the thing is though it's all true it is every word is true I've, I've done a couple of podcasts on it and um some it, it's weird with with mental illness it's it's a difficult one because people do not realize that it's not something that goes away mm -hmm. um i can't i can't speak for everyone because when people talk about mental health they have bad times with their mental health they have better times with their mental health because i have i have four different diagnoses and it affects me 
every single day but I think people get quite complacent in the sense of like well she does really well in competition or she always steps up to competition it can't be that bad let me tell you it really damn well is it sucks. it's how you cope with it. it it's how you cope with it that's that's the difference that's yeah. the difference I mean I would love to like if a lot if this wasn't in the background I would love to see my potential for competing and that's why I'm not giving up you see um because i i have been um on i've every single competition i've done and i'm not using this as an excuse because i've actually made the podium in every single competition i've done although be it some were defaults and i do keep those separate from my other medals Mm -hmm. because i'm very very honest on social media there are people who will lose a fight and not post about it because they lost but everyone knew you competed anyway just be honest you know yeah so um that's why i was really really had my heart set on representing hyperfly um and that's something i'm extremely proud of i'm extremely proud to represent them because um their mantra is very much about stepping up despite the odds and um it's not about how many medals you have if you know the mantra it's not about how many many medals you have it's about what you overcome the record is not what defines you trophies can't make you you don't win through any amount of wealth or even accomplishments you know talent may be great maybe may be a gift even but it means nothing without heart what defines you is your heart it's your courage your courage to stand up for what is right and sometimes you have to stand alone but it's about not letting the random misfortunes of life strike you down or is it i say choke you out but having the heart to get up and to continue no matter what the circumstances no matter how many times you have to try it doesn't matter how much you lose it means to accept defeat it means do or die and that's what i live by i live by the hyperfly mantra and i actually approached them um (laughs) this is quite embarrassing but i'll miss it anyway as a white belt but obviously (laughs) you don't really get sponsored as a white belt and um I when I wasn't actually I represent Hyperfly Europe because that's where I'm based and I loved everything they stand for I absolutely loved it I was like that is me you know I may not always win but I fight with heart and I leave it all on the mats every single time despite the odds despite you know despite whether it's stomach surgery because I've had you know a ruptured appendix or whatever or ovarian cyst or or even like being in a psychiatric unit or whatever i will i will step up i will always step up and um i actually got rejected the first time but i applied again as a blue belt and i got accepted onto the team so that's one of my that's one of my proudest uh achievements along with um winning silver at the euros after coming out of psychiatric care so stay fly you can't teach heart there's a lot in that and i really really identify with that wow yeah (laughs) i'm just lost i'm just like so lost for words right now but um i I told you i could speak for england and spain (laughs) that's that's awesome but that was a very 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 awesome uh, story and i'm very very glad and i appreciate you coming on and sharing that with us today yeah thank you for having me no thank you for having me i appreciate it 
Now, I know you already said a mouthful, but, you know, if you wanted to shout out your school, if you got any competitions coming up in the near future, um, you know, by all means, the floor is yours. Thank you. I definitely have to give a shout out to everyone at um, Stella Luce and Stella Porto for helping me prepare for my fights. My teammates are absolutely awesome. They always pick me up. Um, have to give a shout out to uh, Professor Gareth Lauf, my coach and long-suffering partner, <laughs> for putting <laughs> up with me and also traveling with me. Um, because when he, when we travel to compete, it means that he has to get cover for the classes. And with, with having two clubs you, and having classes every day, we have like four or five classes a day. You can imagine that's not an easy task. Um, massive shout out to XS Guard Mouthguards, my mouthguard sponsor. Obviously, shout out to Hyperflight, Hyperflight Europe for believing in me. Also, shout out to um, Enhanced CBD, one of my other sponsors, and everyone who has stuck by my side because it means a lot. And I don't forget stuff like that. But yeah. shout, out, shout out to you, Lamar, for having me on. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, the pleasure is all mine. You are such a badass and it shows. So, yeah, it was definitely, um, definitely wonderful to talk to you. And I would definitely would love to have you back again, you know, later down the line, your, uh, your jiu-jitsu journey to catch up and talk and to hear more awesome stories about uh, from your training and your growth. Anytime. Rather. All right, and uh, that's the end of today's episode. I would like to thank my guest, Tiana, once again for coming on the show. I really hope you enjoyed the tales and some of our experiences. Please go and follow our Facebook and Instagram page to stay up to date on all future episodes. This has been Talk Your Jits Podcast. Keep rolling, keep grinding, and remember, long live jujitsu. Have a great day.